Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. You're listening to the Wes and Walker Show. It's the Charlotte game. Tonight, they take on FAU. And Fiddy asked me where my cutoff was. I told him I left it at home. It's Wes. But what if I tell you I didn't? Oh. No, no, you're not that smooth. What if I tell you that I'm wearing it right now? Get ready to tailgate at 430. Let's go. Let's go 49ers. And Walker. Yeah, baby. Get off the boat. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Only on Sports Radio 92.7 FM WFNC. Show Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. The text line 704-570-9610. Keep them coming. Check us out on social media. WFNZ on Instagram and Twitter. At Westbrian underscore 72. At Walker Mail. At HTB underscore Josh. And most importantly, at Weston Walker on Twitter or X. Whichever you prefer to call it. Let's get right to it, folks. It is time for the campus. Counter. All right, last night, my Demon Deacons in the first of two matchups with Duke this month. They'll see him again on the 24th. But Wake Forest goes down at the hands of the Blue Devils, 77 to 69 in the game with the Cameron Crazies last night. And Duke has now won 25 consecutive home games against Wake Forest, making it the longest Duke home win streak against any opponent. The last Wake Forest win in Durham was in 1997, January 11th to be exact. In league play, Wake Forest entered the game leading the ACC in points per game in league play, I should say. And second in field goal percentage and three-point field goal percentage, they finished 39% from the field against Duke, and they shot 53% in the second half. Wake held Duke to 29 first-half points tied for its fewest total. Heading into halftime this season and lowest inside of Cameron indoor. Two Blue Devils, Kyle Filipowski and Mark Mitchell, finished with at least 20 points for the first time since playing at Louisville on January 23rd. And two Duke players, Filipowski and Jared McCain, logged double doubles for the first time since the Louisville game. So, what were our thoughts on this game last night? We'll see these two teams again very, very soon. But how did the Duke Blue Devils look, in your opinion, Walker Mayo? Yeah, I, I think Duke just was able to get it done against what is a talented offense, and I think that matters quite a bit. Despite Wake Forest making it a close game there midway through the second half or even a little bit further on at the seven-minute mark, something like that, I think they brought it to within two, and they found some success. There were a couple of times they found it in the post and were able to score, but then Duke just always had an answer for when Wake Forest was able to get it close, and I think that is the sign we seen it with North Carolina for the most part this season and that's what you see from good teams if other teams are going to go on a run because of course they're going to give it their best shot against a team like Duke top squads in all of college basketball especially when you're playing in an environment like Cameron Indoor that crowd might have you going despite them cheering against you and so when you give Duke their best shot or your best shot 
and the Blue Devils still find a way to answer, that's a big deal. It's still a talented team, despite Wake Forest's woes trying to win on the road. I thought this was a big old win for the Blue Devils. And then as far as just looking at this team individually, Kyle Filipowski and, and what he brought to the table, but Mark Mitchell seems to be a guy that really makes this team go with the way that he attacks the basket. He had 23 points and 8 boards, 9 of 14 field goals. I mean, it's hard to really look at this Duke team and pinpoint who may be their most important player uh, going through conference play as we march towards the ACC tournament. I mean, is it still Filipowski, or do we feel like that there are uh, there's another presence on this Duke team that is most important to their wins and losses? The guy that I think brings them to a different level if he's playing well is still Tyrese Proctor, who was 0-5 with zero points yesterday. And so the fact that Proctor has had quite a few of these games where he just is non-existent offensively, even his saving grace in the North Carolina loss was the fact that he defended R.J. Davis pretty well. But here are his last four games, starting with that loss to North Carolina. Two points in 26 minutes. Nine points against Notre Dame. He had 10 on eight field goal attempts against Boston College. Zero against Wake Forest. And before that, he had been getting to double digits consistently, maxed out at 24 against Louisville, 18, and a big one-point win against Clemson. Tyrese Proctor, to me, if he is playing well, I think that's the guy that brings them to a different level because of how up and down he can be offensively. He's the most important player to me. And if he, can, if he plays well, then that ceiling goes much higher, in my opinion. Whereas if you look at a Mark Mitchell, great basketball player, just a guy that's high energy there, Harrison Ingram, if you will, with some differences. I still think the answer to that is Proctor with how many goose eggs he'll give you. Yeah, the only thing that I look at, too, is that we talked about the output that he had last night. He's finished in double digits in five of his last six contests and 13 of the last 15. And they're 29 and three in games where Mitchell scores at least 10 points. And, I mean, he's a guy, he's not going to shoot the basketball uh, with any type of accuracy like that. He's just going to attack the basket. And so that's why I wonder if he's a guy that could be that missing link or is he the most important. Fiddy, what did you think about this basketball game last night and what do you think about this Duke roster? Is Filipowski the most important guy still in your eye? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm with Walker. When Proctor plays at a high level, they look different. But I also think Jared McCain's uh, emergence as a you know legitimate rebounder and what he can do on the offensive glass is big for him. I thought it was just a workmanlike win for Duke. Nothing sexy, but they got the job done. Plus, y'all had chances, man. Like I thought y'all got quality looks. You got great looks from behind the perimeter. There was one possession. You got four open threes, and you missed all four of them. And I think that's when I knew just early on where it's just like it's not going to happen for Wake Forest. Still among Joe Lenardi's next four out or first four out, when he projects a 68-team tournament field. But if y'all want to go dancing, you have to get the return game with Duke in two weeks. Yeah, no doubt about it. And that's the thing when I watched that game last night. You know, I was hoping that they would win, but I knew that, you know, they had another one kind of NBA style where you're like, all right, you know, they'll see this team again. And it's like, you know, you'll be hard-pressed to expect to be able to sweep uh, a program like the Duke Blue Devils. So now... When you look at it, okay, Jeff is coming in here. Uh-oh, oh, it's a complaining words, Yeah. Complaining what works. What do I say, Walker? Close Leakers. mouths. Don't get fed, and they will be fed now. 
with Dunkin' All Donuts. Right. Got a little mini box. Because of our complaint earlier. Watch so this. We Wait, we got it, a Jeff. mini box? What's the? No, I'm playing, Jeff. I'm playing. The mini box works. <laughs> this is fine. Please don't hurt me. We're all good here. <laughs> all right. So now when we look at tonight's action, though, the North Carolina Tar Heels, they don't have the biggest challenge in the world. But I'm sure Fitty will find a way to make this like the days of Carmelo Anthony and Jerry McNamara tonight, where they will walk into Syracuse against a subpar orange team. But somehow, some way, this environment is going to be reminiscent of what Bay, of when Bayheim was roaming the sidelines with national championships and winning seasons at stake. But through February 11, the Tar Heels are one of two teams in the ACC, Big East, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, and SEC with six road wins. They beat Syracuse the last time they saw them, 103-67. to should the Heels win this game, it would secure their 64-20 win season in Carolina history and their third in a row, their 12-3 all-time and the JMA Wireless Dome, formerly known as the Carrier Dome. And they're 34-17 and yeah, all-time in Dome Stadium. So what do we think about the Heels tonight? Is there going to be any issues at all as they head up north? Well, you know what they say, Wes, when you go to the JMA Wireless Dome, you just don't know what to expect. Nah, look, this, this it's really this simple. Judah Minch, J.J. Starling are two really, really good players. That's all Syracuse has. And so if Carolina brings the, le- the same level of intensity and focus they brought in the second half against Miami, which should be the same result as the first game, which was a 36-point blowout. So I'm looking for Carolina – to go up there and win this game rather comfortably before coming back home uh, for a game with Virginia Tech over the weekend. All right, so now, you know, as we take a little bit of inventory as the season has marched on, do we still feel strongly that R.J. Davis is the guy to win uh, the player of the year right now, or have there been other another candidate or candidate to emerge in this race? I, I actually was trying to make a case for somebody else, like realistically, It's R.J. Davis. If you're going to be on the best ACC team and be the leading scorer, also only be behind Hunter Salas in minutes played per game at like .3, so essentially a non-existent difference there. The field goal percentage is worse, but not from three. From three, R.J. Davis is one of the league leaders in all of college basketball, but also in the ACC. 90.7 free throw shooting percentage and still dishing three and a half assists per game. That's higher than all the other top scorers, too. So he's also getting others involved. It's R.J. Davis. There's not anybody really within the same tier that could win ACC Player of the Year award. Yeah, R.J. Davis is the only player in the NCAA in the top 25 in scoring. He's ninth to be exact. Free throw percentage, three-point field goals made per game. He's 14th there. And three-point field goal percentage, uh, he is 21st. And I'm with you, Walker. I don't really see uh, anybody else when you look at this because you go through the top five in scoring and the ACC, R.J. Davis, P.J. Hall, Hunter Stylish, Judah Mintz, Blake Henson, and so uh, none of these guys have teams that I feel like are going to really be in the mix for real, for real, for an ACC championship. If Clemson or Wake Forest was in that mix, then maybe those guys would have cases, 
But the team success and then with the individual success that he's had this year, I still think it's R.J. Davis. Well, it's not even because of the team's success. It's just that R.J. Davis is having such a special season. But, Wes, because R.J. is playing so well, he's taken away a three-peat for Wake Forest to win ACC Player of the Year. Like, the next guy on the list, and shout-out to P.J. Hall, who also deserves, I guess, some consideration in Tier 2. But Hunter Salas is the guy, especially if Wake Forest finds themselves in the NCAA tournament. He comes in as a transfer, as a guy that is putting up all of these crazy numbers where he's one of the league leaders in scoring. He's also shooting really efficiently from the field and three-point range, and he is doing a bunch of like little stuff too, two and a half assists per game, grabbing four rebounds. Hunter's going to finish second in my opinion. And remember, Wake Forest not making the tournament the last couple of years, and yet they still finish with Alondis Williams and Tyree Appleby as ACC Players of the Year. So, yeah, North Carolina being as good as they are and R.J. Davis playing as well as he is, there's not going to be a real discussion at the end of this season. But if you just had, like, some other normal year, then Hunter Salas might make this a three-peat, man. He still deserves to be, like, second, in my opinion, when we compare everybody Yeah, else. last night he had 22 points, five rebounds, four assists, and a block. Over the last two games, he's averaged 27.5 points a game in a last night's contest third in the ACC in scoring and averaging a team high 18-7 per game. And last night was his 12th 20-point performance of the season and sixth time in ACC play. Fiddy, what do you say? Is it still R.J. Davis's award to lose, or do you have somebody else that could be nipping at his heels? No, I still think it's R.J. Davis's award to lose because look at the team that's emerged as maybe the second-best team in the league, and that's Virginia. What player would you even consider maybe giving that award to? It's not like when they had Ty Jerome, Kyle Guy, Joe Harris. Really, they had like bona fide, you know, first round NBA talent on that roster. I mean, that's more of a team, you know, or you know, team nucleus that's getting the job done. And it would be Reese Beekman. Yeah, I think. But but you're right. Like not ACC POI. And so I think as long as Carolina closes out the regular season strong, even if they don't win the ACC regular season title. RJ's just played at the highest level of anybody in the conference. All right. Well, there you have it right there, folks. I mean, I th- like I said, it's going to be interesting, but it would take a gargantuan effort to catch R.J. Davis at this point because, like I said, I factor in team success a whole lot into this as well. And as long as he keeps hooping and Carolina stays up in that top five and they're dominating the ACC right now, it looks like they're going to be the chance. But still some basketball to be played, no question about it. But we'll see how this race ends up as it goes. But right now, all of our front runner is... R.J. Davis. Well, when we come back on the Weston Walker Show, a coaching decision do-over, Super Bowl edition on Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
Welcome back to Wes and Walker. You're listening to Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. You can't do it in real life, but we'll play this game. The coaching decision do-over. A Super Bowl edition. Steve Wilkes, would he have called back that blitz on third and six that allowed Rasheed Rice to go for a 13-yard gain? Does Kyle Shanahan regret kicking the field goal on fourth and four in overtime? We can go to those in just a moment. But really, speaking of overtime, that's something we missed yesterday. More so with all of the other things we talked about. Lots of storylines to get to. Pat Mahomes, goat talk, where Andy Reid is in the coaching hierarchy. But we didn't really get to the fact that the players after the game said, we didn't understand the overtime rules. We were learning in real time, just like everybody else. I apologize for not giving this person credit, but I did see an amazing tweet yesterday. Wes, I saw somebody say, it's amazing that Eric Armstead found out the overtime rules at the same time that Ice Spice found out about the overtime rules. (laughs) It's an amazing tweet because it's so true. Here's Armstead, who had a good game, by the way. And Ice Spice finding out at the same time. And so here's Kyle Shanahan With the decision, if they won the coin toss, they would receive. But now with the new uh, overtime rules, Bill Voth, not Bill Voth, goodness gracious, big shout out to Bill Voth who used to cover the Panthers. I forget the official's name, but the head official explained the rules saying, Bill Vinovich. Thank you, Bill Vinovich. Bill Vinovich is telling everybody that, hey, we essentially have a new game here. That we're going to go into this overtime period being essentially the first quarter, but... Each team is going to have a chance to possess the ball. And even if you score a touchdown on the first possession, the other team is going to have the chance to answer that. And after that, if there is a tie ball game after the first two teams have a possession, then it's sudden death. So each team gets a chance to possess it. Kyle Shanahan, they decide to receive it because they wanted to get to the ball at least. They wanted to get it third. They wanted to get it first. And if Kansas City scores or matches their touchdown, then they wanted to have the next chance after that. Here's more from Kyle Shanahan on why they took the ball in overtime. None of us have a ton of experience of it, but we went through all the analytics and talked to those guys, and we just thought it would be better. We wanted the ball third. Um, If both teams matched and scored, we wanted to be the ones who had the chance to go win, and um, we got that field goal, so we knew we had to hold them to at least to a field goal, and if, if we did, then we thought it was in our hands after that. If you're Kyle Shanahan... Understanding that hindsight is twenty twenty, but even so, like you could still just go for it on that fourth down anyway, if you really wanted to. Is this the coaching do-over that you would decide to do? Is this the one that you would pull a mulligan on here, Wes? You would decide to kick it in the in this moment? You talking about kick it or go for the fourth and four, correct? Well, just kick it. No, receive or kick in overtime. Oh, in I overtime. Yeah, I'm yeah. the one that um, makes that up. But no, no, no. It's rather- fine. Uh, no, I was cool with them taking the ball because I get the logic. Now, again, I didn't quite understand the rules, and I wasn't paying attention when the referee was talking during the game. I was just worrying about if they were going to win it or not. But uh, because I'm thinking when they get the ball first, I'm like, okay, they get it and score. It's over. But, um, you know, I can get the logic of wanting to be able to have that that walk-off moment because I know some people say, okay, well, you kick the ball to Kansas City first, and then you can see what happens. And then maybe your defense is able to hold them to a field goal like they did a lot of the night when they got into scoring range. But I didn't have any issues with him uh, kicking the field goal. Uh, I mean, kicking the ball off to start the overtime. I felt like, especially with the way that the game ended, it didn't matter anyway. But uh, in a perfect world, like I said, I, I don't fault him for that. I don't fault him for it either. It feels like a decent amount of people are, though. 
Now, what you can fault him for is the players not knowing the rules. But I wonder how big of a deal that is anyway, right? Because, uh, I mean, dude, Juszczyk said they thought they won the game when they kicked the field goal. They were under that impression. like, Oh, well, that's just stupid then on yeah, the players' I don't, part. I don't know that he said he, that they Ooh. thought they won when they kicked the field goal because nobody acted like they well, won like, the field goal. I think the they knew – they knew that the, the Chiefs were going to get a chance. But I think it just the comes in regulation, though. If no, that's, it's not. If that's the case, then that's all on use check. It's like, dog, you know that we've been playing football like this the last couple of years. That's that Harvard education, man. Uh, so so if that's the case, I didn't hear him say that specifically. But mm-hmm. if that is the case, that's all on use check. My thing is, okay, if you're fighting out in real time, yeah, it sounds bad. And it might be. But also, okay, defense, go stop the offense as best as you can offense go try to score a touchdown as much as you can the tactical decisions that are made there are by the coaching staff and i think kyle shanahan knew the rules i think kyle knows what's going on and even if he doesn't then you got to operate on the fly and that's where it might become a problem for me it feels like all of the nerds that the football people call them all of the analytics people are trying to figure out what is the best decision and i i've seen arguments for both sides I understand Kyle Shanahan wanting to receive it because you do get to it a third time. So, okay, you can't stop Pat Mahomes. That's fine. At least you get the football back in return. But here's the thing for me. So I don't necessarily blame them for receiving the kickoff to start overtime. I don't blame them for that. If that's the case, though, right? If you don't think that you can stop Pat Mahomes, which is what Kyle Shanahan talked about, said, look, this is the best player, one of the best players that we've ever seen. He talked about losing two Super Bowls now to Tom Brady and Pat Mahomes. If that's the case and you know how important a touchdown is, then man, at fourth and four on Kansas City's nine, that's the do-over I'll take, Wes. I don't care about them receiving. It's all about what they did on that possession at the end of that possession that resulted in a field goal. Fourth and four at Kansas City's nine. If you are so sure that Pat Mahomes is going to lead that team down the field, I mean, West in regulation, if if that if there's one more second on the clock in regulation, Kansas City goes for a touchdown throw. They do it. But only six, that's a l- mm, so close. And they decide just to go ahead and kick the field goal. But bottom line, Kansas City was driving down that field. That's the do-over I would have if I'm Kyle Shanahan. I think you go for it on fourth and four. Yeah, I think you do too because, again, and – you know, I don't want to be hindsight guy because I know coaching is so hard. And sure. I mean, it's easy for everybody to say what they would do until you get into the situation. But I think then you do need to somewhat understand your opponent that you're going against. And I know that you can trust the defense, but you could see that there were starting to be cracks in the levee. You knew that this defense was getting tired. You knew that the pass rush wasn't getting home like they had been earlier in the football game. And so with that, you needed to just make a decision that you could live with. And I think that most 49er fans, I think, could have lived with that if he would have gone for it. Uh, you know that Spags was more than likely going to come with some type of blitz, and then you would have had to figure that out. But, uh, yeah, I'm with you 100%. You know you got Mahomes there. You got a chance to end the game. With a guy like that, you have to make unorthodox decisions because that's just the type of opponent you're going against. Because, again, you know, with me not knowing the overtime rules like that, in hindsight, once I did figure that out, I looked at it and said, well, did I trust the defense to be able to stop them from scoring a touchdown, even if San Francisco had scored a touchdown? I didn't. With the way that they were playing at that point, I did not. I felt like Mahomes was going to be able to get whatever he wanted uh, at that point. And so uh, with all that said, 
I think that you got an opponent like that. You want to kill the king, you got to kill the king. And they should have taken that risk and tried to go for it. Falcons Franny is angry, angry texting me on the text line. To go for the touchdown on fourth and four would be all caps asinine. And there's about five or six other text messages that she sent with also that same type of level of aggression. But one, I mean, just to be clear, you're not going for the uh, touchdown on fourth and four, right? It wasn't fourth and goal from the nine. It was fourth and four from Kansas City's nine. And so all you had to do was just pick up five yards and you're able to keep possession. And we'll see what happens from there. If you just didn't think that you were going to stop Pat Mahomes, which is what Kyle Shanahan was alluding to after the game, that to me illustrates, well, then why aren't you going for it in that moment if you didn't think that you would be able to stop Pat Mahomes? And so that's the question I have. Speaking of all of this overtime stuff, right? Should they have received the kick? Should they have deferred? Dan Orlovsky had some thoughts on it as well. He was on the Pat McAfee show saying, yeah, you can't take the ball first in overtime and give Pat Mahomes four downs. My thought about it is it's all it's very similar to the Dan Campbell kick the field goal, go for it thought for me. The numbers say one thing. They factor. They matter. You have to take into account how you're playing and who you're playing. And Patrick Mahomes had just gone right down the field in regulation, marched right down the field. They didn't get stopped. They just ran out of time. That's how they kicked the field goal to tie it. And your defense was reeling at that point. Um, but also, like, Kansas City's defense was playing fantastic. So, like, you thinking, I'm just going to take the ball, march down and get points, I would have never given the ball with four downs to Patrick Mahomes. I would have never done that. And that's what you do when you take the ball first. What do you have to say about Dan Orlovsky's reasoning there? And does that make more sense for you then as to why Kyle Shanahan should have just kicked it instead of chosen and uh, instead of choosing to receive it the way he did in overtime. Yeah. I mean, Olaski's, you know, one of the guys that I definitely respect and I definitely uh, respect his opinion on things. And I know that, uh, you know, giving my homes a chance to figure out what he needs to do um, because they said, and he talked about after the game, how they were going to go for two regardless of the situation. So like I said, you're in a scenario. If you're the 49ers that you're more than likely going to have to make a stop. And you're probably going to have to stop them from getting two points because at that point, yes, the momentum had completely gone to the side of the Chiefs. And as I just said, Patrick Mahomes was getting what he wanted at that point. There was no answer for him because the pass rush was no longer getting home. He had all day to sit back there and make the throws. And if not, he was still improvising, getting out on the pocket because you talked about how it got hard for guys to stay disciplined in their rush lanes and posting those guys starting to go down inside. So uh, there were plays to be made by him. And so, you know, it's always going to be hindsight when you lose. Bagel guy writes in Walker Mahomes did say they were going to go for two either way. So San Francisco's offense was not getting a chance again. I did. I didn't hear Pat Mahomes say that. I did hear Pat Mahomes talk after the after the game saying, yeah, we were going to take it second. We were going to uh, we were going to go ahead and kick in that set of overtime rules. Andy Reid said the same thing. Andy talked about how Kyle Shanahan is a really smart guy. And so he has his reasons for choosing to receive it. Kansas City would have chosen. to, So they got it how they wanted it anyway. Like they were just going to go ahead and receive it second anyway. If that's the case, though, like if Pat Mahomes said, yeah, we were going to go for two the entire time. Well, then you got to go ahead and put some points on the board if you think Kansas City is going to be aggressive, right? Which you have no way of knowing, but you got to go for the touchdown. 
you got to go for it on fourth and four. And that's the biggest thing to me. Dan Orlovsky saying that Kansas City's defense was fantastic. They played well, but the 49ers offense in the last two drives of this game did get a field goal. And they did have a chance to go for it on fourth and four in overtime to possibly get a touchdown. They got saved by a Trent McDuffie holding call. That was huge. But then after that, they started running the ball more, and they were marching down the field. It's a lot of plays on that final drive that led to a field goal. And San Francisco was moving pretty well until you had that great play call from Steve Spagnolo on the McDuffie Blitz at that point, and that held San Francisco in check. I just wonder, like, okay, yeah, Kansas City's defense clearly played lights out for most of the second half. San Francisco did come away with some points in those final two drives. And that's where you wonder, either one of those times, do you just decide to go for it and say, hey, we're not going to settle for the field goal? Two monster plays. Because when you are the Kansas City Chiefs holding a team to a field goal, that's like a stop for them because they know who they have at quarterback. Yeah, like right. When they get a field goal, they're like, okay, that's great. Even the same thing. On the other side with San Francisco, you know, when you get a stop and you hold Mahomes to just a field goal, that feels like a stop, you know? And so, uh, you know, I just think that that was some of the thinking that went into it too, man. This defense, this Kansas City defense, they knew, you know, they bended, but they didn't break. They sure did. Last one. Steve Wilkes blitzing on Kansas City third and six in overtime. That led to the Rasheed Rice 13-yard completion. So I think this is the one that you probably want back. And for me, it doesn't necessarily mean that Steve Wilkes lost them this game or that if they just would have called anything else, that Kansas City wouldn't have scored. But to do something that Pat Mahomes has notoriously torched just destroys the blitz. And they really weren't blitzing like that. Steve Wilkes was calling a seven-man blitz all out, straight up. And I think it was uh, zero blitz at first. Kyle Shanahan calls the timeout because he's not interested in that. And it felt like there was a big old cushion on Rasheed Rice to the right side. All you had to do was run a comeback route, whatever, or just stop right there at the sticks because of the cushion. And maybe Pat Mahomes' arm strength is able to fit it in there, but Shanahan didn't even give that a chance to happen. I just think you got to give them a different look rather than just an all-out blitz, such as the way that he called it, for Rice to get that completion. To be fair, there were other plays that Kansas City was able to capitalize on. And so it wasn't just that third down. There were plenty of other plays that the defense didn't show up for on that final drive. So I'm not trying to put a ton of attention on this. It just feels like, okay, let's not go to something that Pat Mahomes has been so successful during his career against. Well, I mean, the thing is, obviously, the, the old phrase, no risk it, no biscuit. And so you're sitting there, <laughs> if you're Steve Wilkes, and you're saying, if we can get one sack – that just changes the whole complexion of this drive because you get this. Let's just say you get a sack there, you put them in a fourth and double digits, and then it's one play for the game. And in that scenario, even though it is Patrick Mahomes, you do feel a lot more confident if you're on the other side that hey, we can somebody can get home, somebody can dig deep. I mean, we we saw Tom Brady Super Bowl in in a sack fumble when he was trying yep. to come back against the Philadelphia Eagles. You want to put him in that situation. So with the blitz, you know, I can't fault him 100% for it because you're like, man, if you can get there or if you can get there and a guy can get a hand up right at the last second to, to bat the ball or throw it off or something like that, that, that's the thing. You just decided to take a risk and it, you know, it went the other way for you. But as far as him deciding to do that, I just think he felt like we got to do something. We can't just allow him to sit back there 
and be comfortable and throw this football because at that point, that's what he had become because the pass rush was no longer getting there with the ferocity it once did. He's like, I can't just let this guy sit there and be comfortable on a third and six because he's going to find somebody and could really, really hurt us. Let's just take a risk. And when you want to win championships, sometimes that's a requirement of the job. It didn't go their way. Kansas City, they took risk on their side defensively, and it worked for them. Like you talked about with the blitz with McDuffie coming through there perfectly timed to stop a third down because if the 49ers get a first down there, that changes the ball game. So Spags took oh, man, a risk over. there with that blitz. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. It's not over. Yeah, you got to be able to take risks, man, and live with the consequences. Yeah, I just it's it's the the zero blitz call, and it's the amount of people that they send compared to the cornerback blitz from the slot from McDuffie. The timing, sure. right? It, it does seem different, but you're right about that. Darren writing in, it's amazing how you guys always blame the coordinators when they lose, but when they win, it's the head coach who is the hero. I'm not blaming Steve Wilkes, and I think you were going the exact opposite, Wes. I'm not even blaming. It's just it's a it's a play call that made a big old difference in this game. Yeah. And so we're breaking it down. Like how much criticism does Steve Wilkes deserve for that call? Does the defense deserve for not getting home? How much criticism does Kyle Shanahan deserve for not going for it on some of these fourth down convert? Like I actually do think they should have gone for it the time that they settled for a field goal. Um, at the end or uh, at the end of their possession in overtime, because Wes, another thing we need to bring up here, San Francisco did go for it earlier, fourth and three on Kansas city's 15. They decide, you know what? We're going to go for this thing and we're up three. So here's, or excuse me to, to try to, you know, break away from this tie ball game. Excuse me. So they go for it. And they have the completion to George Kittle, who's pushed out of bounds, and he was able to get that four-yard pickup. And what did that lead to? That led to a touchdown that eventually led to Moody, you know, missing that extra point. But they went for it there. And that was a big deal for San Francisco to be able to pull ahead at least a field goal. And, you know, the missed extra point proved to be large afterwards. But, yeah, they went for it there, and they got it despite Kansas City's defense actually like playing pretty well in the second half, and then they didn't go for it at the end. And so it's like, okay, three yard compared to four compared to five. I know a yard matters. I truly do. Does it matter enough for you to take your foot off the gas in those situations? To me, I don't think it would have, but it did for Kyle Shanahan, and eventually Pat Mahomes scores a touchdown and almost does at the end of regulation. Yeah, man, no doubt about it. And so there's going to be always coaching decisions on the losing side that you're going to go back and dissect and see, uh, you know, what you could have, would have, should have done in those situations. But at the end of the day, you know, like you said, you got outcoached by Andy Reid and Steve Spagnuolo uh, when it counted the most, and Kansas City made the plays to the victor go to spoils, man. 704 says, didn't we just criticize Detroit for going, it on fourth, for going for it on fourth down? No, no, we did not. I certainly did not criticize. You did not either. There's we one did. person. You know, we did. You did. You did. You did. <laughs> Vinny is the one that did. We is doing a lot of work. In fact, some false work there. All right, let's go to break. We have Adam Alexander to help us break down the upcoming Daytona 500. Speaking of Super Bowls, it's going to be the NASCAR Super Bowl coming up. Is Denny Hamlin going to pick up his fourth Daytona 500? Stick around as we welcome Adam Alexander from NASCAR Race Hub, Weston Walker Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. 
they're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Back here on the Wesson Walker Show, Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ on a Tuesday. Keep the text coming, 704-570-9610. Daytona 500 coming up this weekend. We had the Super Bowl this past Sunday, and now it's the Super Bowl of NASCAR. The Daytona 500 coming up, and to talk about that and a whole lot more, we've got my man, Adam Alexander, host of Race Hub, NASCAR Race Hub, that is, on Fox Sports, joining us here. Adam, how's it going? Doing great, Wes. How you doing, man? We are doing fantastic. I know a lot of NASCAR fans, they are excited. This is the big one. I know we got a whole season to go, but this is the one that gets everybody fired up. So we got to know, coming into the Daytona 500, which driver and team has the most momentum going into this huge race? Mm, To me, there's no doubt about it right now. You have to say Denny Hamlin. And I would say that's on multiple fronts. One... He won the Clash, which is the exhibition race that we had to start the season out in Los Angeles. So he feels like he's got that winning style going already, and that's positive for him. The other thing I would say about Denny Hamlin, he's won three Daytona 500s. There's no one better when you talk about active drivers right now in this style of racing than Denny Hamlin. He's just special in every way, understands the draft. And go back to what he did last year. He won three times. I know they didn't make the championship four and probably some – disappointment in the way last year ended but across the board he's driving and and, and playing at a high level that he ever has right now well the defending champion ryan blaney he's certainly a guy that's going to be coming in there looking to make his mark again uh this season what does he need to do to repeat as champion this year yeah i would say that you know getting off to a good start because it you know sometimes that that can be you know you have that championship hangover right and i I think it's really easy to come out get off to a slow start and maybe lose that momentum and and i feel like for him getting off to a good start is going to be the key and and when you look at at drivers who are capable at daytona he he is one of the best in the draft And, and so you feel like that things will just carry over. He, too, was pretty good in the clash. And, and so across the board, you would just anticipate he's going to be someone we're talking about the entire season. Adam Alexander joining us on the Wes and Walker Show. You're listening to Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. Adam, real quickly, I want to go back to Denny Hamlin because if he wins this thing, then he'll be a four-time winner of the Daytona 500. That will tie him for Cale Yarbrough for the second most amount of wins at the sports mecca. Man, like, is he... The is it as simple as calling him the second best driver at Daytona after Richard Petty? Like, what would that mean for Denny Hamlin's legacy to win another one of these things? Well, I would say that one thing that would be most impressive about Denny winning another one and, and joining that elite category and matching Kale Yarborough would be the second all time to Richard Petty is looking at who he's raced against. Number one, the, the competition has just been incredible. When you look at Denny Hamlin's career and drivers that are able to get it done in the draft, I mean, a good portion 
of the early stages of his career, he was racing at Dale Earnhardt Jr. And, and Dale has, has always been noted as one of the great grafters of all time. And so anything Denny has been able to get, he has earned. And I would also say what makes Denny so impressive when it comes to the Daytona 500 is just that we have seen the cars change over the years, which makes it you know difficult on the drivers. You have to adapt. You have to figure out the new way of the draft. And Denny has been able to do that. And you know, let's face it, there's a lot of pressure on athletes right now. And Denny getting it done, not just in the Daytona 500, but, but just the magnitude of that race and everything that goes into winning a race uh, at that level really highlights what a tremendous competitor he is. Adam, we go into the Daytona 500, the sports Super Bowl, and it's just unique in the fact that we start with the Super Bowl right off the rip we're beginning with it. What's the main storyline even after the Daytona 500 is over and done with? What's a main storyline you're looking for this season? You would have to say, um, you know, you talk about Denny Hamlin and, and where he is in his career, but, but, but I, I think that you know, while he's won three times in the last eight races in the Daytona 500, you know, you have to also have to consider we've had some surprise winners come out of this race. Last year, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., not what we anticipated. You know, two years ago, you had Michael McDowell. You, you had Austin Cindric win this race. And so you, you could come out of Daytona with a surprise winner. We go to Atlanta next week, and, and that's a drafting track that brings some unknowns. But we could very well be looking at – Two races, two surprise winners, and what does that do to the balance of the season when it comes to making the playoffs? And so, you know, getting off to a, a great start is very important, and, and I feel like Sunday goes a long way in setting the tone for what we'll see as we go throughout the year. And if, if we get a surprise winner, not just this week, but next week, that could really change the outlook on who could get in the playoffs and who could be on the outside looking in when we get to September. Adam Alexander, host of NASCAR Race Hub on Fox Sports, joins us on the Body Works Plus guest hotline. And William Byron is a guy out of Charlotte. He led the series last year in wins, top fives, top tens, and average finish. And him being such a young driver, what perhaps can he do to translate all of that dominance into a championship this season? It's just a matter of finishing the deal. And I would say, and you guys know this, and you talk to athletes and coaches all the time about what does it take to be successful. And the one common thread that you're going to hear from everyone is you got to have confidence. And I would say that 2023 went a long way in developing William Byron. This is a confident driver. And when you do things at a high level, the expectations change as well. And so he's not only confident, but I think he enters the year with more expectations than he's ever had. He saw what was possible, and he's a competitor, and he's got that frustration, uh, that bad taste in his mouth, that they were unable to finish the deal and, and get done what they had set out to do when they made it to Phoenix a season ago. So across the board, I think there's a lot of, thing moving, a lot of things moving in the right direction, but that confidence and that expectation probably – is what will allow him to take the next step. And Adam, Chase Elliott experienced an up-and-down season in 2023. How much pressure is on him to respond to that in 2024? I would say there is some pressure. And I I talked about the fact if you're Ryan Blaney and you're the reigning champion, you want to get off to a good start and and build on the momentum from a season ago. 
I would say the opposite is true for Chase Elliott. Yes, you, you want to get off to a, a big start just like Ryan Blaney, but it's for the opposite reason. You have got to get back on track and reestablish yourself as one of the premier drivers in the series. I don't think anyone doubts where Chase Elliott fits in, but they just did not perform. Even when he came back from injury and the suspension and all that, they just did not perform at the level that we are accustomed to seeing them perform. And you look across the shop, and there's William Byron who had six wins and makes the championship four. And there's Kyle Larson who won this thing in 2021 who had four wins last year and makes the championship four again. You, you have got to take the proper steps to be step-in-step step with your, your teammate and put yourself in a position to go out there and, and be one of the premier drivers again. And, and getting off to a good start is going to be key for them to alleviate some of that pressure we're talking about. Adam, a uh, final question for me. I know there is some momentum coming in from Full Speed, which was the NASCAR Netflix special. I have not had a chance to see it. I think it's only been out for a few weeks at this moment, if I'm not mistaken. Have you seen it? What did you think about it? And how much momentum do you think is being carried in? Because now we get to know a little bit more about these drivers and the sport with another Netflix doc that seems to do well for a lot of the sports that they cover. I'm not sure when we will know the full impact of the NASCAR documentary on Netflix. But I will say, as someone who's been around the sport for a long time, and you take so much of what you see for granted, I found it quite informative. I found it quite entertaining. And for just the average sports fan or the average viewer of a documentary you know, on one of the platforms like a Netflix, I just feel like it's going to go a long way in serving NASCAR as you look into the future and what we can do to introduce these drivers as people and not just competitors so that you can latch on, become a fan, and, and not just want to, to root for them and see them do well, but actually invest, tune in, and, and watch the races and maybe even attend an event in person. So to me, it served its purpose. It was uh, well-received. I felt like you know the early going, and I haven't seen any returns here recently, but the early going – uh, out of the gates, the results were good as far as viewership and uh, how many people were, were jumping on and watching it. So uh, I do feel like that that could be a real shot in the arm for NASCAR as they continue the growth process. Adam, last thing I've got for you, what should NASCAR fans be most excited about heading into the 2024 season? The unknown. That, that's what it always is. Whether you're talking about Sunday's race in the Daytona 500, which, as we know, is unpredictable, and that's one of the many things that makes it great, but last year, 15 winners, and in you know, the last couple of years, we've just seen so many things happen that we couldn't have foreseen. And it's that unknown that keeps you coming back. So I would say the unpredictability is, is what has got me excited, and that's probably what does it for fans as well. That's Adam Alexander, host of NASCAR Race Hub on Fox Sports 1. You can catch that there. Adam, we appreciate the time as always, and we'll see you down the road. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. All right, well, when we come back on the Wes and Walker Show, we're going to go to the Live Wire Connect with J.D. Marlowe on Sports Radio 92.7 WFNC. <laughs>